Global Business News 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. From Bloomberg World Headquarters, I'm Charlie Pellet, the Dow, the S&P, NASDAQ, all lower. Stocks are falling as a decline in trading revenue at J.P. Morgan Chase sends bank shares lower. Treasuries rose while the dollar and oil retreated. West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil is lower by $1.54 a barrel at 48.11. That is down 3.1%. Brent is down 3%. Gold up 8.20 the ounce, higher by 7 tenths of 1% to 12.70. The 10-year up 3.30 seconds, yield there 2.20%. And we've got the S&P down 4 to 24.08, down 2 tenths of 1%. The Dow down 35, down 2 tenths of 1%. And NASDAQ down 18, a drop there of 3 tenths of 1%. I'm Charlie Pellet, and that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Thank you very much, Charlie Pellet. Well, it's 1148 here on the West Coast. It is 248 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Megan McCardle, a columnist for Bloomberg View. New York and California are considering moving towards statewide single-payer health care systems. It's an important experiment. If they succeed, they could be a model for other states. And if they can't do it, then we'll know that single-payer simply can't be done in the United States. Politically, both states are firmly in control of Democrats, which makes them fertile ground for such experiments. But that's not their only advantage. They're also big, which means they don't have to worry so much about either taxpayers or healthcare workers deciding to move away from the taxes and regulations that would be needed to make such a system work. Perhaps most importantly, however, both New York and California have large, extremely lucrative industries that throw off a lot of cash to fund healthcare and can't easily be moved. In this day and age, knowledge clusters like Wall Street or Hollywood are actually harder to relocate than a traditional factory. So the state governments where they happen to reside have more fiscal capacity to experiment without worrying about killing the goose laying the golden eggs. As the words of the song go, if single payer can't make it there, it can't make it anywhere. I'm Megan McCardle, a columnist for Bloomberg View. For more commentary, go to BloombergView.com or view Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. Thank you very much uh, for the Bloomberg Commentary. Bloomberg Commentaries can be heard every weekday at this time. They can also be heard at 548, 840, and 1140 at Wall Street time. Living in the future, we are going to be talking about the companies and the firms of the future, perhaps uh, what corporate America will look like down the road. We're going to get that from Andrew Schwedell. He's a partner and senior member of the financial services and have macro trends at Bain & Company here at Bryant Park in New York. Andrew, thanks so much for joining. Uh, you guys have a pretty cool study out uh, this year looking at the firm of the future. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so thanks for having me, first of all. I'm happy to be here today. We started really looking into the firm of the future and how it might evolve because in so many of our dealings with clients and CEOs in particular, we were getting a strong sense that we are at the end of an era. Mm-hmm. It felt like something fundamental was shifting in business and the way our companies are managed, organized, led, and financed. And when we went back and looked at it, we found that you know this is not a new occurrence. It happens periodically every 40 or 50 years ago through the history of business. And so we started profiling different eras in the past. Hmm. You go back 100 years, you had the trusts, the large vertically and horizontally integrated companies, founder-led and managed, very powerful. That gave way to what we call the era of professional management, large, diversified, multinational companies, powerful managers who – 
uh, were separated from the interests of shareholders and ownership. That era broke down in the 1970s as we entered what we now call the, the shareholder primacy era. The critique at the time was there was misalignment of management and, and shareholder interests. There were wasted resources on unrelated diversification. And so you started seeing companies shed non-core assets, focus on their core business, build leadership positions, really sweat the balance sheet and push uh, efficiency. And that's the era we've been uh, living in. But as as we see now, there are just so many trends, technology, social and political, workforce changes, complexity that are causing that era to break down. And and the question really is what's coming next? Um, What are the things that drive these kinds of changes? I want to get to the structure real quickly, but just just before we get there, what, what might make this happen? Well, you know, one obvious one is technology and and the increase in computing power and networking and the ability to no longer have to choose and trade off being big and having the benefits of being big and being close to customers. So big data, analytics, the way you can know your customers now and be nimble, uh, potentially even as a large company. The um, the second factor, I would say, is is macro instability. You know, as in the 70s, the previous change in eras, we now have a very unstable environment. There's a growing backlash against the current uh, model of, of modern corporations, critiques of inequality, uh, backlashes against trade and immigration. Um, big companies don't really create jobs here at home. Most job growth comes from small, young companies, and yet new business formation is falling, and firm survival rates are down 30 points since the 60s. Mm. So something is broken in the model. Um, the third factor is the change in the workforce. So millennials are now the largest segment of the workforce, but you also have more people at the older end of the end of the workforce who are um, wanting to work part time and, and extend their retirement dates. Um, and then the fourth uh, issue is just complexity has gone from chronic to critical within large companies. As CEOs know that it's important to be fast and agile, they find it harder than ever to mobilize and shift resources quickly uh, to keep up with the market. We've got to ask about the role of um, activists and mm-hmm. activist investors in this because some of that stuff, the efficiency, the desire, the sort of, uh, you know, Doing everything possible to move around corners to make it, you know, the best for the shareholders. A lot of that comes from the activists. Is that a key element in how this is sort of the the catalyst for change? Are active investors and the, you know, seven nine percent, you know, secretive stakes that get announced and then take over companies? Is that going to be a part of the future? Well, you know, activists certainly are, are a large phenomenon and, and companies are, are very focused on them and, and trying to take into account how they might act uh, when they think about investment decisions. There's a lot of critiques of short-termism. You yeah. know, so shareholder primacy era, I think shareholder value will continue to be critical and stay with us, but it has become very short-term oriented. You know, part of that is, um, and there's a lot of different models of activists, so part of that is driven by activists, but part of that is driven by management teams who grew up in an era where they had what I'd call a capital scarcity mindset. Um, cost of capital in the 80s and 90s was 10, 15 percent. Right. And in that environment, there's a lot of value in improving profitability and focusing on short-term returns. But for large companies today, you know, the average cost of capital is down to 5 or 6 percent. Cost hmm. of equity is 8 percent. ROE for most large companies is is 20% or more in many cases. And so when you have that kind of a spread of profitability versus your cost of capital, the value actually is on incremental growth. In fact, a study that we did earlier this year suggested that – Wait, wait, repeat that again. That's intriguing. When when your profitability is much higher than your cost of capital – there's a greater impact on creating intrinsic value, which ultimately links to shareholder value, through mm-hmm. growing faster 
rather than continuing to improve profitability. In fact, the, the rule of thumb that we so, use so is this sort top, of curve grow, here. Grow top line. Grow top line, Get, yeah. get big fast is, is, is the Silicon Valley way, right? Well, get I, big you know, fast. I don't know that it has to be fast. It should be sustainable. But but growing and especially grow, uh, well, growing organically or via M&A, but uh, dollars tomorrow are going to be worth more in an environment when, when rates are low than, than if rates are high. I think that's, that's really all we're trying to say. And the study we did this year suggested that it's actually four times as valuable based on where most companies are today. So, so the question is how do we unlock growth and sustainable, profitable growth? But the company today, the modern company, is, is a bundle. It's a bundle of short-term opportunities and long-term opportunities, high-risk and low-risk opportunities, different types of investors with different needs. And if you kind of average the cost and the way the market has priced the risk of all those investment opportunities, it makes the average probably uh, too high. And so it deters a lot of investment, and you get things like buybacks, which are now more than 100% yep. of earnings for large companies. Andrew, just real quickly, got about 10 seconds here. The companies or the sectors that come to mind that sort of are going to be the pinpoint for the future firms? Any, any, any that, that stand out to you? We see it all over the road. I mean, uh, one of the things we talk about in the article is flexible capital, being to, able to invest in specific projects. Pharma has done that. Um, GE has done that to mm. develop their latest generation of uh, aircraft engine. Um, you see that with film studios and Hollywood. You see it even in insurance. Yeah. 10% of the capital in reinsurance comes from uh, cat bonds and, and insurance-linked securities. So we'll see more and more of these Andrew, experiments over Andrew time. Andrew Schwedell, great stuff from Bain & Company. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.